So where are we right now? We are in front of the Federal Trade Commission building. The FTC is one of the oldest regulatory agencies that we have. A few months ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with a woman named Rena Steinzer. She's a law professor at the University of Maryland, and I don't think she'd take offense at this. She is a passionate, unapologetic nerd when it comes to federal regulations. I asked her to take me on a sort of regulatory tour of the Capitol, like the equivalent of the tour you might do in L.A., where I'm from, to see the landmarks that embody Hollywood, like the Hollywood sign, the piece of cement with all the movie star handprints. I wanted her to show me the landmarks that embody federal regulations. I knew it wouldn't be quite as sexy. But then she takes me to this one spot that she says really embodies the story of regulations in our country. And it is kind of sexy. And we're standing in front of... Marvelous statue. A horse bigger than you can imagine with huge body and a long tail. Really muscular. Really muscular, very powerful. And there is a man who is equally robust with rippling muscles. He's shirtless, and he is trying to control the horse. And what the statute stands for, the horse is industry. The horse is industry. And the man is... And the man? The man is, well, man. We the people and the government that represents us. In the statue, the man and the horse are intertwined and entangled with each other. They're really struggling. So the eternal struggle between... The eternal struggle between industry and the general public. And to play the metaphor out a bit, like the relationship between a horse and a man, the relationship between industry and the general public is complex, many-faceted. Man has to constantly work to tame the horse. It's a never-ending process, because if the horse wants to, it's strong enough to trample the man. An out-of-control horse can do real damage. But there's also this incredible symbiosis between man and horse. Horses help people. Till fields, pull wagons. People help horses. They feed them, care for them. And you might say that the goal of federal regulations, at least in theory, why a statue of a man tangling with a horse is sitting in front of one of the nation's earliest federal regulatory agencies, it's that regulations are supposed to be the tools to keep this relationship in balance, to rein in the power of the horse, to protect the man. But it's tricky, right? Periodically, there are episodes in American history where everything breaks down. The relationship between industry and we the people, between horse and man, goes sideways when government pulls in the reins of regulation so tight that the horse industry can't thrive, or when industry thrashes so hard against the reins, it risks hurting the public. I asked Rena Steinzer, the regulations nerd, where she thinks things stand right now between we the people and industry, between the man and the horse. Yeah, the horse is on a roll. The horse is on a roll, no question about it. Welcome back to the uncertain hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. 
I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent of Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty team. This is a show that dives into the deepest uncertainties of our lives and our economy to try to make some sense of making it in America. This season, we're taking on federal regulations, something we've been hearing a lot about from the White House and Congress recently. Specifically, they voiced concerns over how federal regulations affect industry, business, and corporations in America. Excessive regulation is killing jobs, driving companies out of our country. The absolute strangling effect of overregulation. This administration will set out to free businesses from constraints of government bureaucracy and regulation. The regulatory burden is for the people behind me and for the great companies of this country and for small companies an impossible situation. We're going to solve it very quickly. And so today, on this episode, we're going to dive deep into the relationship between corporations and the federal government. Because if you want to talk about federal regulations, you kind of have to talk about corporations. Sometimes they're at odds with each other, and yet they're also entirely reliant on each other. Federal regulations are the yin to the corporational yang. Yeah, it's a complicated relationship, actually even more complicated than you'd imagine. I should say, by the way, that I'm joined by Marketplace producer Tommy Andres. Thank you for coming in, Tommy. Hi, Chrissy. Thanks for having me. And today, Tommy is going to help us trace that complicated relationship between corporations and government backwards to help us figure out just how we became a federally regulated country and why. Yeah, I'm going to tell a series of stories that help illustrate how intertwined the relationship between corporations and the federal government is and always has been and why that's made the push and pull of federal regulations such a lively, eternal struggle. The story starts all the way back in the 17th century. And Chrissy, I want to ask you a question. When you were taught about English colonists in your American history class in school, where did the story generally start? Uh, I'm thinking pilgrims fleeing religious persecution. Uh, They were Puritans. And so the pilgrims got off the boat and began the hard work of setting up a settlement in the New World. Yeah, and I think most people would say that, which is why I asked you. This was a trap, actually. (laughs) Uh, And it makes makes a great origin story, right? It sounds really nice, but it's not actually an origin story because in 1607, 13 years before the Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock, 104 other Englishmen, and they were all men, arrived on the swampy shores of America. And they weren't refugees— Most were actually employees. So long before the Pilgrims came here, uh, a for-profit business corporation had already established uh, a beachhead on these shores. That corporation was called the Virginia Company of London. And Adam Winkler, a law professor at UCLA, writes about it in his upcoming book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Okay, let me stop you for a second to ask just a really basic question so we're all starting on the same page. What is the kind of for-profit business corporation we think of today, something that brings to mind swanky corporate boardrooms and people in business suits? What does that have in common with something like the Virginia Company? Well, the basic concept of a corporation goes all the way back to the Romans, actually. It's just a group of people who are authorized to act as one entity. So in the case of the Virginia Company, King James authorized a group of wealthy English aristocrats to form a corporation to search for wealth in America. Those aristocrats were like shareholders. And the colonists, the poor saps who had to make the long slog to the shores of America, they were like the employees. And many of them were indentured servants to those shareholders. 
the colonists settled what would become Jamestown. The Virginia Company back in London was so eager for profits, it ordered a full one-third of all the colonists to go out and search for uh, precious metals like gold and silver or a passageway to the South Seas. Now, these guys spent the vast majority of their time on aimless searches. This meant that not enough people were on hand to plant the crops that the colonists needed to make it through the winters. For the first three years, conditions were harsh, to say the least. The Jamestown settlers faced incredible hardships. And it wasn't just a lack of food. Disease, drought, fires, attacks by Native Americans who were defending their land. You name it, it was happening. And on top of that, they weren't finding anything. It was very difficult for the corporation to operate at such a great distance. But the Virginia Company continued to send employees from England to Jamestown, hoping more searches would yield more results. By 1609, the settlement had tripled in size to just over 300 people. More mouths to feed meant the residents were forced to eat anything they could get their hands on, really. Dogs, cats, rats. Shoes, paper. And eventually, each other. There's evidence now that the colonists turned to cannibalism in their desperation. Only 60 of the 300 Jamestown settlers survived through the winter of 1609. The American experiment was effectively over. But the Virginia Company wasn't about to throw in the towel. Jamestown had been bleeding it dry, something that infuriated its shareholders. So it doubled down on its efforts yet again, luring more and more adventurers, as the investors were called back then, to buy in and more laborers to come over. One of the ways they did that is by offering people to govern themselves. The first elements of representative democracy were brought to America by the Virginia Company. For the first time, people from England were offered the opportunity to govern themselves. They would collectively choose the people to run the colonies and agree on their own rules to follow. That was in Jamestown that we had the first representative assembly. And it was designed as a measure to increase corporate profits. Um, the board of the Virginia Company back in London uh, wanted to encourage more people to come settle to America, especially given the harsh conditions and harsh environment. In 1624, the Virginia Company officially declared failure as a money-making corporation. But it set a foundation for everything that was to come, including American principles of representative democracy. The concept spread to other colonies. In fact, several of the 13 colonies started in this same way other business corporations from England coming to America, hoping to strike it rich off of natural resources and setting up these small representative democracies to lure employees over and keep things in order. Wait, so how were they representative democracies? Well, so this was the first time that people actually got a chance to elect their leaders and have input as to what the laws would be in these colonies. So this was a very new concept. And a lot of them started like this. So Massachusetts was started by the Massachusetts Bay Company. Rhode Island started as Roger Williams' Rhode Island and Providence Plantation. And each of these colonies was set up with a corporate charter which was basically a contract granting formal permission to start the corporation and a set of rules for how the corporation would operate. So even when the corporation was the government, it had regulations. And these corporate charters actually ended up having a huge impact on the founding fathers and the formation of the American federal government nearly 150 years later. 
the written charter became a model that the founders ultimately looked to and based their own constitution on. American constitutionalism really is based on many ideas that came from the corporations that formed the early American colonies. Okay, so this is definitely not what I learned in my high school American history class. Like, what about Locke and Hobbes and the Magna Carta. I thought that was the stuff that influenced the founding fathers. Right. Well, I mean, that stuff all played a role as well. But what Winkler is saying is that corporate charters were sort of like the blueprints for the Constitution. So philosophers and founding fathers sort of hashed out these broad ideas of freedoms and social contracts. But corporate charters created the structure, the building blocks for how these were insured. In fact, there's one corporate charter in particular that had a big impact. The corporate charter of the Massachusetts Bay Company in 1629 has a lot of similarities with the present-day Constitution. Not only is it a written document that limits what government can do, it also specifies how the executive was going to be selected, how representatives of the people were going to be selected and vote, and recognized fundamental individual rights. It included an elected governor that served as commander-in-chief, an assembly that could enact orders, laws, statutes, and ordinances, an impeachment process, guaranteed liberties for citizens born in the colony, and even the right to bear arms. I mean, take a look, Chrissy. I've got a copy right here. So this is the Massachusetts Bay Colony Corporate Charter of 1629. Okay. Now, check out the language on there. What what strikes you? Okay, so... So you've circled something here. Okay, the circled stuff strikes you. <laughs> good, good, good. We... It says, we do hereby for us. So we do hereby for us. Now, what does that sound like to you? It's we the people. I'm not following you. How is that we the people? So we do hereby for us. We are doing that for us. That's the whole concept of our Constitution is we write it ourselves. We get to create our own rules and laws. Huh. Yeah, and there's some other striking language in here as well. I mean, the government of the people. It says that actually verbatim. So nearly 150 years before the Constitution was written, corporations helped to create some of the basic framework for our democracy. They are part of our very DNA. Which is trippy and fascinating to think about when you're thinking about the dynamics between corporations and the federal government now and the way that federal regulations fit into that. Right. I mean, when you think about sort of that man and horse sculpture, right, the man wrestling the horse, it's almost like the horse gave birth to the man, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Our country, as we know it, was formed in this corporate sort of construct. Right. We're we're like... uh... What are those half-man, half-horse animals? We're like a centaur. We're like a centaur, basically. That's so interesting. But also, in those early days of our nation's founding, wasn't there a lot of concern about corporations and the power they could have? Yeah, and in fact, founding fathers like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote about their fears of corporations growing too big and taking over the political process. Jefferson talked about the risk of the, quote, aristocracy of our moneyed corporations that would challenge our government to a trial of strength. But those concerns mostly fell on deaf ears. Because after independence, there wasn't a monarchy to charter huge government-backed corporations like the Virginia Company or the East India Company. So how could corporations of that size and scope ever develop here? So the threat of the power of corporations that maybe Jefferson and Madison were concerned about was still kind of abstract. 
Yeah, I mean, in America's earliest days, there were actually only 12 businesses that fit the loosest definition of a business corporation. So there were two banks, two insurance companies, six canal companies, and two toll bridge operators, which were not exactly corporate juggernauts. So when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, they didn't mention corporations at all, not once, which in their lifetimes wasn't a big deal. I mean, remember, because most of the corporations they knew were tied to a monarchy, a system which the founding fathers had replaced. But the fact that the Constitution didn't mention corporations would become a big problem. Coming up, America's first homegrown corporate juggernaut and how America's first federal regulatory agency tried to put that juggernaut in check. Hello, wonderful, uncertain hour listeners. As we put together future episodes, we want to know what questions you have about federal regulations. Are there things you've read about in the headlines or social media that confuse you or that you want fact-checked? Lingering curiosities you have about stories we've told you in past episodes? Send us your regulatory wonderings, and we'll try to answer them. They may even inspire an upcoming episode. You can email us. Our address is uncertainhour at marketplace.org or tweet us at uncertainhour. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about how America's relationship with corporations goes back to the first English colonists. And we also talked about how even though corporations were ingrained into the fabric of the American colonies, the founding fathers didn't actually mention corporations in the Constitution. Yes, and the fact that the word corporations was not in the Constitution didn't really matter until the railroads. Railroads changed America in ways we can't possibly comprehend. I mean, television, computers, the internet, none of these things reshaped daily life as much or as quickly as railroads. Like stitches, railroad tracks helped sew a country fresh out of the Civil War back together. And not just metaphorically. I mean, a trip from the East Coast to the West Coast took four months in a wagon. The railroads made that same trip possible in four days. And they didn't just save time, they actually changed it. Before the railroads, if you lived in Chicago, it didn't matter what time it was in Cleveland because you'd never go there. You probably didn't even know anyone there. And you couldn't call them because you didn't have a phone because they didn't exist. Right, so who cares what time it was there? I mean, timekeeping was only important locally, which meant that nearly every city in the country kept time itself. But the trains made precise, uniform timekeeping essential because people had to come and go to these different places. Before the trains, America had as many as 300 time zones. Now, of course, the trains are the reason we have four on the mainland. This change so infiltrated the consciousness of Americans that it even made its way into Henry Thoreau's poetry. He wrote about trains in Walden. He said, quote, They go and come with such regularity and precision, and their whistle can be heard so far that the farmers set their clocks by them, and thus one well-conducted institution regulates a whole country. There's that word, regulates. So trains regulated America way before America regulated trains. Right. And of course, the biggest impact trains had wasn't on time or, or, you know, transportation of people, but on commerce. I mean, that was really what they changed in a huge way. They made interstate trade not just possible, but commonplace. And railroads quickly became the arteries of the American economy. There is no American economy without the railroads. Richard White is one of the nation's foremost experts on trains. He's a history professor at Stanford University. 
and I'm the author of Railroaded and the author more recently of The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age. He says railroads grew larger and faster than any industry in history to date, and railroad companies became the first big national corporations. In terms of business corporations, it amounts to railroads. There are corporations before that. Harvard University is a corporation. Cities are corporations. But joint stock corporations, the modern corporation, in the 19th century, when you say that, you mean railroads. That's about all there really is. Before railroads, the largest companies in the country employed a few hundred people. By the late 1800s, 1.5 million Americans worked for the railroads. But to get the industry going, the federal government had to lend a heavy hand. Railroads are a paradox in the 19th century. They're immensely powerful at the same time as they're incredibly weak. They do not make enough money to survive. They depend on subsidies and political favors. So a great deal of their energy goes into cultivating Congress and legislatures. They own senators. They own congressmen. They become the power in many states. The government also helped railroad companies seize land from American citizens so routes could be built straight and efficiently. But once a railroad company built a route, it had a monopoly on it, and it could charge whatever it wanted to whomever it wanted. And and none of these things made for happy customers. And even though business corporations of this size were a new thing, Richard White says that Americans felt like this at the time about them. Americans love railroad technology. They have no objection to railroads at all. What they hate is corporations. And corporations are seen as these um, cancers on the republic. What they do is take away people's freedom. What they do is limit people's possibilities. What they are is immensely wealthy people who um, get their money not from hard work like they're supposed to, but from financial manipulation and special favors. So railroads stand for everything that's wrong in the American economy. Farmers rally together to fight for fair rates. The press begins to decry the railroads for greed and corruption. Rail workers go on strike en masse for the first time in American history. But so much of the American economy relies on railroads in the mid to late 19th century that public sentiment only went so far. And these railroads are are huge. The railroads have budgets and they hire more people than many small states. So when you go up against a railroad, you're going up against something which is unknown up until that period in the United States. It's a source of private power, which is pretty much what the founders feared. If, If their nightmares came true, it was a railroad corporation. Okay, this actually reminds me of a Thoreau quote that I do vaguely remember, something like, we don't ride the railroads, the railroads ride us. Yeah, it becomes this kind of existential crisis for America. For the first time, Americans find a means of transportation owned by a corporation which can determine their own livelihood. In the late 1800s, it wasn't clear who the railroads, these first homegrown American corporate juggernauts, answered to. After all, corporations were not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. The federal government doesn't have much authority to regulate, and so much of the early regulation we're going to find is going to be in the states. Some states try to put caps on what railroad companies can charge. Some try to tax rail companies on goods that pass through their borders. But the train companies have grown so big and so powerful that they simply ignore state regulations or they take the states to courts where they have often paid judges to rule in their favor. 
They would pay judges to rule in their favor? Yeah, I mean, this was the type of thing that happened back then. They literally owned congressmen, as Richard White said, and they also owned a lot of judges. They had so much money and so much power that they could literally put people on their payroll to, uh, to help get what they wanted. My favorite example of just how bad this problem got comes from this spat over local taxes in California that actually made its way all the way to the Supreme Court in 1882. It was called San Mateo County versus Southern Pacific Railroad Company. Now, Southern Pacific Railroad was one of the biggest railroad companies in the country at the time, and they were so hell-bent on avoiding this tax from this small county in California that they paid far more than the tax would have ever cost them to hire one of the most famous lawyers in the country to represent them. Roscoe Conkling was a senator from New York, and he was one of the leaders of the Republican Party in the 1870s, a period of time when the Republican Party simply dominated politics in Washington. Conkling was often said to be the most powerful man in Washington, including the president. That's Adam Winkler again. Now, he wrote about this story in his book, We the Corporations, as well. Winkler says Conkling has a claim to fame that sticks even until today. He was nominated twice to the Supreme Court. Both times he turned it down on his own. Uh, the second time after he had been confirmed by the Senate. So Conkling is still the last person ever to turn down a Supreme Court seat after a confirmation vote. But Conkling was just simply making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads to go onto the Supreme Court. And perhaps the reason Conkling was paid so much was because of his creativity, because he certainly got creative in this case. Conkling was representing the Southern Pacific Railroad that was challenging a California tax that only applied to railroads. Conkling and the Southern Pacific argued that that tax denied the company equal protection of the laws under the 14th Amendment. Wait, the 14th Amendment? The one about slavery? Yeah, so the 13th Amendment freed the slaves after the Civil War, and the 14th Amendment provided those freed slaves equal rights. Everyone knew what its intent was. But Conkling pointed to the wording in a specific clause of the 14th Amendment, a clause that starts, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. But then that same clause goes on to say, quote, nor deny any person the equal protection of the laws. Conkling said there was a reason the word citizens appeared in the first part of the sentence and persons appeared in the second part. Conkling went to the Supreme Court and told them that the framers of the 14th Amendment had used the word persons specifically to include corporations. Whoa, he's basically arguing that corporations are people too, Point, that thing that became such a big debate during the Citizens United case a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people probably think that corporations are people too, that famous phrase. And the debate around it only goes back to like 2010. That's when the Supreme Court ruled on uh, Citizens United. But here it was being fought about in the Supreme Court in the late 1800s. And Conklin claimed actually to have special insight on the 14th Amendment. It turns out that Conkling had been on the committee that drafted the 14th Amendment after the Civil War. So here was a framer of the 14th Amendment saying, this amendment was designed to protect corporations too. It's hard to argue with someone who helped write the 14th Amendment, right? I mean, this was 15 years after it had been ratified. Conkling was actually the only drafter left alive. To back up his improbable story, Conkling produced a musty old journal that he claimed was a never before published record of the deliberations of the 14th Amendment's drafting committee. 
This is a journal no one had ever seen before. It gets really theatrical at this point. I mean, Conkling is a charismatic man and a, a brilliant orator. And was also considered quite tall and handsome and wore flamboyant clothes uh, that were always sure to attract the ladies. So Conkling stood up in front of the nation's highest court, a court he'd been asked to join twice, and read aloud from this journal. And, and so he used this powerful and commanding presence to try to prove his point. It's really a remarkable claim to have a framer of the 14th Amendment claim that it was designed to protect corporations too was in some sense the admission of a conspiracy. He was basically saying that the drafters had in mind corporations but never told anyone. And that we the people ratified this amendment thinking it was about protecting the rights of the freedmen when what we were really doing was protecting the rights of corporations. That remarkable claim, however, was a lie. Conkling's story was a fraud. When Conkling referenced this journal in court, he quoted from it selectively, adding inferences that the text didn't make, and he drew conclusions that, were they not coming from one of the nation's most respected men, would have been considered pretty ridiculous, actually. Laughable, maybe. A technicality in the case kept the judges from ruling on San Mateo versus Southern Pacific. So there was never actually an official precedent set from this case. But this case was a clear illustration that corporate power had reached new heights. I mean, Southern Pacific was trying to change the Constitution over a county tax. It also strikes me that in some ways the fact that that word corporations was never mentioned in the Constitution It's like that omission is coming home to roost now. Since there's no mention of the word in our founding document, the door is open to fights and creative interpretations of how corporations should or shouldn't be treated by the federal government. It's like the ground is laid for that eternal struggle between industry and we the people. There's no quick fix. Exactly. And this case, Richard Wright says, is when the tide really starts to change. This is the rise of anti-monopoly. This is the sense that we've created a monster, that these railroads have become Frankensteins and have to be brought in or they're going to dominate the government itself. Something had to happen, and something did. And it was all because of a guy named John J. Robinson. There are people who shape history with ideas, bold actions, incredible works. And then there are the John J. Robinsons of the world. He's a guy you won't find in any history books. In fact... I don't know when he was born, what he looked like, whether he had a family, but there are three things I know about him that are pretty important. One, he was a signalman for Eastern Railroad. Two, he called in sick on Saturday, August 26, 1871. And three, that sick day accidentally changed America. The summer of 1871 is a particularly hot one. And the town of Revere, Massachusetts, five miles northeast of Boston, is home to the first public beach in America. And the only way to get there is on an Eastern Railroad train. When crowds bloomed, Eastern would simply add more trains, express, local, resort trains, all on one track. And they depend largely on a system of rigid schedules, which in fact, the people who operate the trains know don't work. John J. Robinson is one of those operators. Now, he worked at the Revere station, and he had become quite skilled at dealing with the increases in traffic, coming up with clever off-the-book tactics. But on Saturday, August 26th, 1871, he calls in sick. Somebody else comes to work on the heaviest day of the summer. Robinson's poor fill-in isn't privy to these tactics that he uses, and that afternoon, the schedule begins to fall apart. The trains end up in the wrong order. They're not on the right schedule. Evening comes, it starts to get dark. It's also a foggy day. 
A little before 8 o'clock p.m., a local train, the Beverly Accommodation, comes to a stop at Revere Station. Its two passenger cars are stuffed with men, women, and children of all ages sitting and standing wherever they can find room. Another train, the Portland Express, was charging through Revere on its way up to Maine. It was 25 minutes behind schedule, and in the fog couldn't make out the signal lights. The engineer on the Express saw the Beverly at the last second and slammed on the brakes. It was too late. Here's what an article from the Boston Globe back then says about what happened next. The light streamed in through the door and windows of the rear car, showing faces pale as death. A hurried rush was made for the front door of the car, but haste only impeded progress, and before hardly a soul escaped, there was a terrible crash and scores of agonized screams rent the air. The majestic iron horse, as if possessed of superhuman power, plowed its way through two-thirds of the length of the car, forcing before it into one inextricable mass, human beings and the seats and fixtures of the car. Trains at the time, they had oil lamps, they had stoves, which often were burning coal, and that once the trains hit, of course, the whole thing goes up in flames. 29 passengers were killed, another 57 injured. God, that is graphic and horrible. Railroad accidents were actually disturbingly common in the industry's early days. But the grisliness of this Revere disaster was truly shocking. There's probably nothing more conducive to getting the public's attention than having um, dozens of people burned to death. Telegraph technology for coordinating trains, better brakes, brighter signal lights, all those things existed at the time of the Revere crash and all arguably could have prevented the disaster. But there was no motivation for Eastern Railroad to upgrade because it stood no chance of losing customers. It was the only game in town. What railroad accidents make clear is that unless the cost is going to be paid for the horrendous loss of human life, railroads will absorb the accidents. Accidents that continue to take place with no improvement. There seemed to be nothing in the market that would yield safer trains. And that's a key point, right? Market forces don't necessarily compel a company, a railroad, to change. Regulations come in when there are failures in the market that aren't fixing things like that. Right. And while the states have been fighting the railroads the hardest about economic issues like taxes and price fixing, public safety was a concern that was easier to rally people behind. That's this thing that often happens like through history from there on out, right? Like it takes a horrible, shocking event for the public to become outraged and actually pressure government to set up regulations and call for regulations. I'm thinking about mining disasters that prompted regulations around the mining industry or people made sick by chemical additives in our food helped create the FDA. Yeah, so several states had regulatory agencies of different kinds to tackle railroad-related issues, but none of them had been successful in garnering any real change until this railway commission set up in Massachusetts actually used the Revere crash to pressure rail companies in the state to adopt the latest safety technologies. And it worked not just in Massachusetts, but surrounding states as well. The Massachusetts Board of Railway Commissioners was unique because it was independent. It didn't work under the state government, but alongside it and alongside the industry as well. The safety changes solidify it as the first regulatory agency in the country to take on big industry and win. The first with teeth. 
But in the meantime, cases between railroads and state governments continued to pile up in the courts. Until finally, in 1886, the Supreme Court makes a landmark decision. States are no longer allowed to regulate any commerce that crosses their borders. I'm assuming the railroads were happy about that? You'd think so, but in actuality, it left the major railroad companies kind of scrambling because competition had gotten so fierce that they were cannibalizing each other. So even they wanted some kind of railroad regulations. If you go back to that horse and man metaphor, these horses were basically running around wild and in danger of trampling each other without the man intervening. All they're doing is committing mass suicide. So they actually welcome regulation as long as they can control it. Lawmakers, the public, the industry, everyone agrees that something has to be done. Now that state regulations are out of the picture, the federal government has to step in, and Congress looks to that independent commission in Massachusetts, the first one with teeth, to draw up its own plan for a federal commission. In 1887, President Grover Cleveland signs a law to create the first federal regulatory body. It's called the ICC. The Interstate Commerce Commission basically creates a, a kind of a new kind of beast. It's I, I would put it as you know one third legislature, one third court, and one third bureaucratic agency. That's Dan Carpenter, the free professor of government at Harvard University, and he says things are quite challenging for the three-headed beast at first. No one is quite sure how much power this new agency has, in large part because the Constitution never mentioned business corporations. So everything is ending up in the courts. And one ruling even strips away the power for the ICC to make regulations. So suddenly the first of its kind federal rulemaking body can't make rules. As soon as it's formed, it's almost immediately hamstrung. And things would get even more complicated. Just six years into the ICC's existence, in the midst of this rocky start, a guy named Richard Olney becomes attorney general. Which means he is theoretically in charge of enforcing new restrictions on the railroad industry. But he's not your average government official. He'd made his career as a lawyer for one of the nation's largest railroads, the Burlington, before hanging it up for government service. That doesn't mean he stops working for the Burlington. He appears to have been still on salary to the Burlington, even as he's attorney general of the United States. Wow. I mean, there's discussion today about whether it's a conflict of interest to have someone start working in government regulating the industry that they were just working in, and whether that makes sense because they know the issue so well, or it means it clouds their perspective. But this is another level altogether to actually still be on the payroll of private industry while you're working in the government. But here's where it gets even more interesting. When Olney's old pals from the railroad industry come calling, worrying about the power the ICC might wield over them, he shares a surprising perspective. He is not against the ICC. He wants to turn it to the advantage of the railroads. Here's part of what he wrote in a letter to one of his old colleagues. The commission is or can be made of great use to the railroads. It satisfies the popular clamor for a government supervision of the railroads, while at the same time that supervision is almost entirely nominal. The part of wisdom is not to destroy the commission, but to utilize it. So he's basically advising the railroad industry to capture the government regulators that regulate it, to make sure they have so much sway over that agency that they can essentially make it do what they want it to do. 
Right. So from the railroad industry's point of view, the arrangement's pretty perfect, right? I mean, Dan Carpenter says having the ICC could actually help solve a big problem for the railroad industry, its image problem. But if what's there is weak, then at some level, business gets the best of both worlds. They get the public being satisfied, mollified by the fact that there is a structure that purportedly serves their purposes. And at the same time, business gets to do a lot of what it previously did under the pre-regulation world because, as Olney said, the supervision is entirely nominal. The ICC's court battles would continue for more than a decade. Out of the first 16 cases brought to federal court by the ICC, 15 were decided in favor of the railroads. The possibility of very strong regulation for the first 15 or so years of the ICC's existence was basically negated by the courts. And that meant that the ICC had to make a lot of compromises. And that also opened the door in many ways to regulatory capture. So to come back to the horse and man eternal struggle metaphor, the court essentially tied the man's hands behind his back so the horse could make him do whatever he wanted. So if you're saying the first regulatory agency didn't actually amount to much, at least at first, how did we get to this point today where there's so much talk about overregulation? Well, the ICC's formation was the birth of the modern American regulatory system. And as the corruption and greed associated with the Gilded Age was eclipsed by the social activism and political reform of the progressive era, the ICC gained power back. I mean, a slew of federal anti-monopoly laws were passed, and those didn't just combat the surging power of the rail industry, but also meatpacking, insurance, steel, tobacco. Teddy Roosevelt would lead the charge against corporate money and politics. Industry, therefore, must submit to such public regulation as will make it a means of life and health, not of death or inefficiency. His fifth cousin, FDR, would expand the federal regulatory framework with the New Deal. With respect to industry and business, but nearly all men are agreed that private enterprise in times such as these cannot be left without assistance and without reasonable safeguards lest it destroy not only itself, but also our processes of civilization. Along the way, other independent regulatory commissions would be created. Basically, if it ended in commission, it was modeled after the ICC. So like the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission? Is this where you're going? Right. So federal regulations would grow and spread and become an important tool to sort of channel America's competitive enterprise into good and useful innovation. Commissions and other regulatory agencies would clean up the air and water, get snake oil out of medicine, prevent millions of Americans from being killed in fires, and get seat belts into cars. So corporations find themselves sort of on the ropes in the mid-20th century, and they start to fight back. So governments kind of by nature have political power, right? I mean, they are political power, but corporations began to take some of that power through lobbying and campaign contributions. And that's helped fuel this wave of deregulation that began in the 1970s, one that has largely continued until today. Many corporations today say the government has too much power, that red tape is choking them to death. They talk about federal regulations trampling on their freedom. But while trumpeting that sentiment, corporate wealth has been steadily building in this country to incredible new heights. Walmart now has a higher annual revenue than the GDP of Austria. Apple just a shade under Portugal. 
And BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, manages $3.3 trillion. That's 25 times the assets the U.S. has in its national currency reserves. Some of these mega corporations have essentially become governments themselves, armed with clout and wealth that rivals any armies, governments, or churches of the past. Which all has echoes of those early colonial days when the line was blurred between for-profit corporations and governments. But also that statue keeps coming to my mind, the eternal wrestling match between the man and the horse, between government and industry. That push-pull, it doesn't stop. It's built into our country. It was back then, and it is still today. And because that word corporations is missing from our Constitution, we're going to keep having these debates about who should control those reins of regulations. And maybe it's not so much that government and industry are wrestling for or against regulations, but ultimately... Who gets to be the one to regulate? Regulators. You regulate any stealing of his property. We're damn good, too. But you can't be any geek off the street. Gotta be handy with the steal, if you know what I mean. Earn your keep. Regulators! Mount up. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks with more stories about the things we fight a lot about, but know just a little about. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was produced by Tommy Andres, Maria Hollenhorst, Lyra Smith, Caitlin Esch, and Tony Wagner. Engineering by Jake Gorski and Ben Tolliday. The episode was edited by senior editor Nancy Fargali with help from me, Chrissy Clark. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Please let us know what you think of our show. Our Twitter account is at Uncertain Hour. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us continue the work we do. 